0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Second Q&A panel on objectivism with Ankar Gatte, Aaron Smith, and Nikos Soterikopoulos. Recorded as part of Ayn Rand Con Europe 2022.
1: It's a question from Emil from the live stream, and it's directed towards Ankar. Uh, Could you elaborate on the statement that evil is impotent and metaphysically insignificant, especially in the context of... The fact that um, evil ideas continue to persist.
2: Okay. So if, if we go back to part of what I talked about, but then Keith, Aaron were talking about the conception of good and the conception of evil in the objectivist theory, the conception of the good is that it's the rational, so it's the source of all the creative um, energy and products that exist in the world, to the extent that we have life-serving values, they were created by people using their mind and then putting that into action to actually create the values that life requires. So that the human life requires production. This is a part of why productiveness is a central virtue in objectivism. Everything created is created by the mind and then action. So, the the thriving and powerful force in the world is the good. What the evil is, by contrast, is the non rational or the anti rational. It's the irrational. It's the rejection of reason. But what that means is it's the rejection of production, it's the rejection of the achievement and production of values on any scale. Um, and so the view in objectivism, and it's a radical view and a very important, is that evil left to itself, left to its own devices, is impotent. It collapses. It cannot do anything. Um, the, its whole source of power comes from the good. And it comes from the good either unknowingly or knowingly supporting it, if you if you take it just at the realm of foreign policy, if you think after, or even before, in, into the, uh, the the prequel and aftermath of World War II, Ayn Rand's view, which I g- agree with completely, is you should have let the Soviet Union collapse of its own impotence. Instead, what happened is the West supported it. It supported it morally in World War II. We treated Stalin like he's a legitimate leader. Uh, we cooperated with them. We, The U.S. gave them money and aid. Um, and then you had a whole host of scientists sympathetic to communism who leaked all kinds of secrets, including atomic secrets, to the Russia. And then you wonder, well, they have a bomb and so on. It's made possible by the inconsistency of the good, of the good not willing to name that this is evil and we will not deal with it. The same you could say for Putin and Russia today. It's the power has come from the West treating Putin as though he's a legitimate leader. Yeah, he poisons his political rivals and so on. He oppresses people in Russia. He attacks Georgia. But he's in the UN and it, there is a, as respectable, is as respectable as the U.S. We're all on the Security Council and so on. You give that kind of legitimacy, both morally and material, to evil regimes. And then they seem like, oh, they wield a lot of power and so on. But the power doesn't come from them. The power comes from the good who serves them, either willingly or unwillingly and unknowingly. And part of the whole story of Atlas Shrugged is if the good... Withdraw, so this is what to say, withdraw your sanction, withdraw your approval of evil, and withdraw your support of evil, it collapses. So that's the view that it's it's metaphysically impotent, and that's compatible with evil enduring for centuries. And this was about evil ideas and so on. If they're not named and exposed and then shunned, yeah, they will endure first centuries. If you treat altruism, which Ayn Rand regards as evil, if you treat it as the essence of morality and then you wonder, well, why is it around for so long? Well, you've treated it as it's the essence of the good. Um, and so, it, so it's a radical position in objectivism, but I think it's enormously important.
1: So my question is, is emotionalism the root of all evil, and is this a good way to put it?
3: I mean, the, w- the way Ayn Rand puts it is that it's the it's the w- willful blindness. Uh, is the ability to shut off your mind, not look at facts that you don't have to know. You don't have to know what you're doing. Uh, and it's that kind of thing that is the root of evil. Um, is there a way you could boil that down to ultimately? This is emotionalism. Um, I think you could. I don't know what you think about that, Ankar, but I think you could boil that down because what's the motive in the end? What's the motive for not wanting to see? What's the motive for just covering your eyes and destroying? What is the what is the motive? Uh, it's I don't want to see, and that that is an emotional reaction.
2: Yeah, I would say the it's. It's a certain form of emotionalism. Emotionalism is a pretty broad phenomenon. And if you say that in some area of a person's life they're operating on emotions, not really on thought, there, that can be really corrupt and that can be for more understandable reasons. So if you have some artist who, they're, I mean, we're pounded with the view that art is beyond reason and so on. And if they think, and in some ways are operating, like I'm operating in a more inspirational way and I don't really think about what I'm doing and so on, that, I don't think that's true and I don't think it's right, but it's not the essence of evil. But when one of the ways she put it, and this is the, the that when it's, the, one of the ways she characterized what evil amounts to when you get it on a grand scale is to place a whim or an I wish above and it is and to knowingly do that, that it's I want what I want is my whims to work. And for instance, a dictator and like a Putin is like this. And why is the environment that everybody's scared to tell him the truth? Everybody's scared like we're failing in the Ukraine. We have no idea what we're doing. Our army sucks. Nobody will tell this then because the whole the atmosphere in this kind of regime is he wants his whims to rule. And you have to cater to his whims and pretend that his whims actually do control reality. But they don't control reality. But his, the whole ma- method of operating is that is what he wants. And that is, like, that is corrupt. And that is a form of emotionalism, but not every form of emotionalism looks like that.
3: And, and also when you talk about an ism, I mean, I think it's relevant that it's not like you got emotional... Like it's like this is your central rule in life that you put the I wish above it is you put your emotions above reality or your perception of reality. And that's how you characteristically function versus you're in an an argument with your wife or whatever it is and your friends or something. and, And you start to realize this is like a snowball going downhill and it's picking up momentum. And you start to realize my focus on the facts and what's true is no longer what's driving this. I'm trying to win and then you, that can happen sometimes, but it's not like that's how I live I live my life. But so it's, I wouldn't put that as an ism. It's just, you know, you let your emotions sort of take over in effect uh, in it's the short range. It's also
4: interesting how many people use it as an excuse for doing bad things. in a football player in the fifth minute he gets a red card because he tackles someone with both legs. He's like, hey, it's the fifth time. Why are you doing this? Like, many more. It's it's. I can't control my emotions. But the way he, Puts it as an excuse, it's as if there is some virtue in it. Well, what can I do? I'm someone driven by emotions, and that's you know, that's some good in it and some bad in it. This time, the bad thing over too. So quite often, I hear it as a cheap excuse in terms of that's who I am. It's I'm overrun by emotions. There's nothing I'm else. I'm a passionate I can do. man. I'm a passionate man. Yeah, yeah,
5: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so, firstly, we heard from Jaron uh, yesterday that. A market on the use of force isn't a, isn't a good thing, and similarly, we heard from Nikos that he took it took him some time to get over the, or rather, to um, to like internalize what's so wrong with with competing uh, competing markets when it's to do with the use of force. Um, given that, it seems to me that with voluntary taxation, in some sense, you have. Uh, you have an entity that we'll call the objective government, which provides a service in exchange for, uh, for taxation. Uh, if one government were to, to do a worse service than, than a different one, wouldn't you, would you expect to see the same market pressures that you would do with any, with any other service? Namely, you would see people going from the the worse, uh, the less good objective government to the better one, and if so, how does that differ from uh, any other market uh, of, on the use of force?
4: So people voting with their legs, as they say, like leaving California and going to Texas, but you mean at the level of leaving, let's say, Belgium and going to Luxembourg? If example. they were
5: objectivist states, sure.
2: Okay. Yeah, that would happen. I
3: mean, so the... And it does happen. It does, yeah, it, it happens with non-objectivist governments. Right, yeah. My wife left France and came to the US.
5: So how is that market different from a market um, that the types that you're on and Mikos talk about?
3: It's not a market. Pardon? Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize that as a market. I mean there's a sense, a broader sense in which well there are different values out there that I could pursue that are sort of in effect I don't know if you could, on offer, but uh, that you could go for. But I don't think of it as a market in terms of um, it's a business. Like it's it's a government, they have guns, and that's not what a business is. So it's I don't think of it I don't think of it in terms of a market.
2: So I suspect your questions come in from a kind of libertarian perspective?
5: If you, if you want to use that word. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. um, the L word. <laughs> so there's a difference between a market and a free market. Or there's a difference between trade and free trade. So trade has existed for I don't know how many uh, million, uh, thousands of years. That doesn't mean we had a free market or we had free trade. So the fact that you have some exchanges, and you can even view like when a mafia comes into a city and says, this is what we're doing. so There's still trade that takes place. It's not free trade. So And it's not a free market. So there's an equivocation when it said it's a market. What we're talking about is a free market. And what a free market is, is you've extracted the use of the initiation of force from the interactions among the people, and that anyone who uses force will be penalized. The police will descend upon them if they're able to detect it and so on. That's what it means when you have a free market. So you have a whole apparatus that has been created to extract force from the market. The trade, as I say, has existed for thousands of years, including all kinds of force involved in those trades. The same is true of anarchy. So part of the libertarian projection is let's try anarchy. It's been tried. We've had competitions in force. Anytime you don't have a monopoly government in a certain region, you have a competition. Then in using force and in in Europe, I mean for centuries, you've had different tribes coming in, the Vikings come in and then you get exploited by the government. So you've had it's not one monopoly government. Or in the feudal system, it's not one monopoly government. It's all kinds of people using force in different ways against you. And you're a hapless victim of that. So it's a massive achievement to realize, okay, what force is, is detrimental to human life. And what we need to do is extract it from the uh, economy. That And that requires to do it well. It requires a monopoly government. Um, and it's not that it's the end of trade or say it's the start of free trade to do that. Um, so, and then it's in that sense, then it's, so it's not a market or in or a free market in force. It's the extraction of force in order to create a free market.
5: And, and secondly, how does the how would an objectivist state actually um, like establish itself, you know, the geographical area that, that it uh, operates in or that it has authority over?
2: In the same way that, say, the U.S. So the, the, the creation of the U.S. is essentially a positive achievement. And it would be like that, that you get to it's just as uh, governments can devolve so they can evolve and you can get something better. And if we had people and it again doesn't have to be unanimous and, or doesn't really have to even be a majority of people who wanted better government, we could create better government. You could do it in Canada. You could do it in the U.K. You could do it in in uh, the U.S. and so on, and it would be those geographical boundaries.
5: Thank you.
1: Um, Ayn Rand's theory of free will seems very unscientific to me, especially since neuroscientists argue about this for decades. So, what do, what would you say about that? What's unscientific? Um, Ayn Rand's theory of free will—that we no, have free what's will. What's
3: unscientific about it?
1: Like to say we have free will because I can feel it.
3: What's unscientific about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you Put it this ex- way.
3: What's unscientific, like, I see her. What's unscientific about that? I feel kind of depressed. Or what's the alternative feel, feel, like, as opposed to what? I feel kind of mm-hmm. depressed.
4: It's too self-evident.
1: Yeah, but I mean, couldn't it be that we don't have free will? But it just seems to us that we have free will. How, 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 would, how would you prove that? That it's not just seeming to us that we have free will, but we, we really have it.
2: Yeah, so I think the answer to that is no. But it's true that that is a common argument. Yeah, so I'm not denying what you see. I'm saying it's an illusion. But then the question is, on what grounds are they saying it's an illusion? And the two dominant ones are, one, an appeal to science that science shows that everything's determined. I don't think science shows that, and I don't think most scientists think that that is true of the world today. And if you take just at the quantum level, I don't think physicists think that that's true, that this the universe is determined in the sense that you just look at antecedent factors, and that would, will tell you what is going to happen, which will tell you what is going to happen, which is going to tell you what. They don't re- accept that as a picture of the universe. So that argument is out that the appeal to science. And the other appeal is an appeal to causality, that what causality is, is one event followed, and there's a prior event, which is the cause of this event, and that has a prior event, which is the cause of that event, and so on. So causality is in terms of events and a sequence of events, and an event causes another event. That's a philosophical account or theory of causality that comes into existence, Renaissance, enlightenment, at least prevalence at that time. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong philosophically that that is what cause and effect is. So, Objectivism is rejecting that as an account of cause and effect. It's not rejecting cause and effect. It's rejecting this account or this theory of cause and effect, that a cause is the thing, the effect is its action. The thing is causing its action. And in that sense, cause and effect are simultaneous. It's not essentially a notion about a sequence going back in time. And if you accept that as the right account of causality, then free will is compatible and is a form of causality. You're the cause. You're causing it, not something in the past. You're causing it now. And then the the determinist position is incoherent. So the determinist position is, yeah, I don't know why I do anything I do or I hold any idea that I hold. It's some antecedent factors, but I can't specify which ones. I can't predict what I'm going to do or what anybody else is. I don't know what the factors are that have caused me to do what I do or to think what I think, to accept what I accept as true and to accept what I accept as false. So his position is, yeah, I was determined to accept determinism. You're determined to accept free
3: will, why does he think he's right and I'm wrong? There's no such thing as right and wrong in that context, I think. Because I mean, one apple falls from a tree and one doesn't, which one was right? I don't know. Some factors necessitated the dropping of one apple and some factors led to the other one remaining on the vine or the tree. You you couldn't evaluate them. Because you know, if you if you if you literally have there, I mean, the view is. I mean, also the issue of control. It's one thing you don't know what the inc- antecedent factors is. is you ha- it, what it determinism means is you have no control over the use of your mind. You have no control over which conclusions you accept as true or false, plausible or implausible, well-founded, ill-founded, convincing, unconvincing. You have no control whatsoever over any of that. None. And nor does uh, this advocate of free will over here. And so it's like, so which one's right? None are right, both are causally necessitated. There's no such thing as right or wrong anymore. Those epistemological concepts that presuppose free will. And so there's no, no getting out of that. That's, that's the incoherent part. It's you can't assert that I've used my mind correctly to reach the truth and you did something wrong. There's no such thing as wrong. Uh, on that view. I...
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah. Hello. Uh, I have a problem with Gail Weinand and uh, could he have chosen not to betray Rourke? and but if not, have chosen not not to betray ork to betray Rourke. and uh, if he couldn't was it because his character was already too bad to do it and i also had uh, trouble finding a, an example of wine in real life
2: yeah <laughs> um so if, if you're interested in this, I have an essay in, there's a book, Essays on Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, edited by Robert Mayhew. I have an essay in there that deals with uh, and It's not only on Wynan, but there's a long section on understanding Wynan as a character. Could he have chosen not to betray Rourke? Yes. Um, and that's Rourke's perspective on Winin, and it's Dominique's perspective on Wynan. If you're saying it's a choice, then you've got the ability to select between these alternatives. So he chooses to betray Rourke at the end. The reason that he does it is he has a certain perspective on his own life that I think is correct. So he has a perspective on his own life at the end that it was a waste, and more than that it was a waste, that he consciously chose to betray what he actually values. And the, both Rourke and Dominique, in a certain way, think, yeah, but you could redeem yourself. But his view of himself is, no, this is beyond forgiveness. I cannot forgive myself for what I have done. And so it's it's put as it's it's, it's sort of, it's it amounts to a kind of suicide at the end. And, and in the movie, it's a literal suicide. Sorry for the plot spoilers. Um, and that, so it's a perspective that what he did was wrong. Indeed, what he did was evil. And I think that is the right perspective on him. And so it, it's not, yes, he could have chosen, not. but there's a reason he makes the choice now, that he thinks it's, no, it, 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 if you put it in this way, um, and it's pretty close to this in regard to Winant, yeah, I've killed some people, but you should forgive me now because look at what I've done. Great now, like he does. He thinks like that's crazy to do that. So it's um, he, review, he views himself as guilty, and I'm going to pay the cost of the the in effect the sins I've committed, and I'm not going to put those costs on somebody else.
4: Is mm-hmm. there something virtuous to do? To do virtuous in yes. terms of realizing the, the the essence of how bad life has been, yeah. because I really. What you said it's like a death. Remember the scene when Rourke tries to see him after and writes him a letter and and he says, I don't want to see you. And then he sees him as an architect to build the last skyscraper, and he deals with him as if he's seeing him for the first time. There is everything, all the energy between them is lost. So it's like I'm lit I'm dead. I'm literally dead. I there's nothing living in me. So but do you think there's something. So what would be more virtuous to accept the monstrosity of the things he did did before and go the way he went, or to say, okay, now I changed my mind, forgive me.
0: But he shouldn't ask for forgiveness. Sorry? He shouldn't ask for forgiveness. Rourke doesn't offer forgiveness in that letter.
2: No, but what he says, it's that someone's seeking forgiveness. It's not from me that you need it. What Wynan needs it, it's from himself. And he has a perspective that he doesn't deserve it, and I understand that perspective—that he thinks he does Rourke not. Rourke
0: doesn't. Rourke doesn't understand.
3: It. Yeah, Rourke. He has a different perspective. Yeah. But it's, he, he would have to have a different perspective, I would think. I mean, Wine and lived the life that he lived. Rourke lived a different life. But I agree. That's one of the things that's really tragic, I think, about that, is that um, um, when you live a life, it adds up to something. And, you know and, and it can be like, take the Peter Keating. it uh, People always ask, how come he didn't redeem himself and turn to painting or something like that? It's like, because he's lived a life and, like you said, the free will, made a series of choices throughout the whole course of his life, and you have a perspective on yourself and what you're capable of at that point. And Keating is like, I'm not, he doesn't have the motivation, I think, to, to do more. And I think he's essentially ruined himself. Um, I think it's more tragic with wine because uh, he had it within him to be...
0: Do you know of any examples in real life of Wyand? Because I couldn't find any.
2: Well, what do you call an example in real life? So it, you could ask the same for Peter Keating, and I, my answer you to that find. is always yes and no. It's Peter Keating is it's it's a fictional character where Ayn Rand is emphasizing a certain aspect of human character, but it's, emph- it's a, so fiction, is highlighting a certain thing. Peter Keenan is unrelentlessly second-handed on everything um, with a little bit of exceptions in regard to it. And have you met someone who's so consistently second-handed on everything? I think no. Um, But have you met people who function like this in certain areas of their life and are a lot of the time? And I think, yes. Have you met a grand scale, like Winan is A A philosopher?
0: isn't exactly that a uh, philosopher? I don't mean you. I mean uh, people in university. Isn't that exactly 2nd handness? <laughs> All their life?
3: Not necessarily. <laughs> Why would it be? I agree. I don't say necessarily.
0: No, I mean, some of them are.
3: But some of a lot of people are. Engineers, Trash. I agree. Electors. So
0: these are examples of Keating
3: in real life. Okay, that's what it goes back to what you was saying. What do you mean by an example? So do you... Um, like when uh, someone says somebody's a Babbitt, you know that you know there's a character in one of, uh, was it Sinclair Lewis' novel? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that you meet somebody exactly like that. It's so I, I mean I use this term all the time. He's kind of a Peter Keating. It doesn't mean he's fully like that, but he exhibits those kind of se- that kind of second-handedness uh, that's noticeable. And so it's she's helping you see features of certain people and the way they function in ways that don't jump out in the way they would with Peter Keating. But you then, once you've show, been shown Peter Keating, it's easier to see second-handedness in other people, even if it's not as pronounced or consistent as it is. What's Thank that? you. And I don't yeah. know if
4: Netflix counts for real life, but <laughs> th- think about... It does. <laughs> have you watched the Casa de Papel? Yes. Think about El Profesor. A guy who is so clever, why does he have to go under a career of crime? This guy could have been a multimillionaire, being a I don't know a CEO or whatever, why does he have to go that path, which is at the end of the day destructive? Although, okay, spoiler alert. But you don't have to do this. So I- there is this element that no, just putting my mind to things is not enough. I want to this extra thing of I want to, uh, you know, to to destroy this institution, blah 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 blah. So that person reminds me Gail Weinan, like what a brilliant mind. That's nice. Thing. You could have been equally even richer. And not have to hide. So why don't you just went the route of okay? I'm not gonna have victims. I'm only gonna have uh, people I trade with.
0: That's nice. Thank you. Thanks.
3: What about Alan Greenspan. He
0: started off good and ended badly. Wine and starts off badly.
3: Greenspan is
5: Dr. Hello. Thank you for your interesting talks. Um, I'm relatively new to um, objectivism. I've read that *The Virtue of Selfishness* and *Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal*. I'm currently reading what you just spoiled, uh, the fountain. <laughs> so uh, sorry. Thank you for that. Um, I'm wondering if there's a specific sequence. I would love to dive deeper into objectivism of books that you recommend um, to co- yeah learn more.
3: If is you know should I continue with Opar? or yeah? I mean, it d- depends. What your interest is, my my recommendation is always the novels, uh, it's the Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. Don't skip We the Living. Uh, I kind of read that that last because ah, oh, first novel. I already read Fountainhead. Yeah. Uh it's a wonderful novel. Wonderful story. There, I mean, the characters are different. The situations are different um, in interesting ways. It's a beautiful story. I. I I've, I won't tell you how many times I've read *We the Living* because the number's too small to be, to be made public. In <laughs> the ways I've made the fountainhead and *Atlas Shug, but I recently went back to reading that. The writing is magnificent. Uh, it's surprising for a first novel. I mean, writing it does have it needs no apology. It's really, really good. And similarly, uh, a totally different kind of well, not different in spirit, but very different in writing is *Anthem*. Uh, again, it's. Written in almost a kind of quasi-biblical style, it's almost kind of a prose poem in a way. It's but it's really poetic, uh, and I think very romantic, um, highly stylized, very abstract story about a world, kind of a kind of a dystopian novel about a, a world in which they've lost the word "I." People, individuals, refer to themselves as "we" and, and "they," and it's this story about a character who's trying to break free of that and discover his individuality. And it's um, it's like 90 pages. Very short and wonderful. Um, But I, so you can say more about the non-fiction, uh, but I always think the fiction's the place. Yeah, I would start with the fiction.
4: And for people who are not so much into reading, I find a lot of value from the Audible versions, particularly of The Fountainhead. First, I read it on the book, but then the more I listen to it in Audible, it really gets you into the, particularly the guy who makes the different voices for the different characters. He's very, very talented. So it it's, in a way, it dramatizes it and it's obviously the book. So it's it's almost as if you see it in front of you. So those of you with, I don't know, attention spans, uh, millennials. <laughs> what? <laughs>
3: what? What? <laughs> <laughs> try, try the Audible. It's, uh, it's very, very good. And another thing, just as a general recommendation, if people haven't consumed this, um, there was a, pirated version of We the Living, made into a film in fascist Italy. And, um, Iron found out about it, was kind of furious about it. But she had, uh, but she, I think she thought the film was basically good, but they, they made a lot of changes in her text and stuff. And she, through legal means, had them go back and fix the stuff. But that exists, uh, I don't know. We're showing it at Oka. Oka. Oh, on, good. In, in DC. What so. a wonderful film. It's, I mean, it's black and white. Uh, and uh, I think the music is wonderful. The acting is very, very good. Um, Alida Valli plays uh, Kira in the story. It's yeah, also very romantic. So someone said to the fascist censor, "We're
4: doing an anti-communist yeah. film," and the fascist said, "Okay, good." But then they saw the film and they realized, "Oh, this could apply to yeah." <laughs> and so, then they banned it. <laughs> yeah, it was literally, I think, thrown away, and someone found it. Like it, it has an interesting story. Yeah. But read the book first. Don't go first yeah. to the movie. Okay. Or else.
3: Yeah. Thank, you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> in introduction, of course. <laughs> Aaron, uh, earlier in your talk you juxtaposed reason to faith. Yeah. And you said um, reason is the only tool in the box. There's yeah. no space for faith. But I was wondering whether faith is a legitimate uh, tool for motivational purposes. Say, for example, you're in a management context. Um, For example, you're you're coaching a team and you're going into a big game against another team that you've consistently lost against, your team has lost against them for uh, the past few times that they met. And if you go to your players and say, okay, let's look at the evidence... (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're not going to bring Sorry. out a, not going to we're bring all, the best We're all out spirit of them. here. Yeah. yeah. So, is that a, is, a uh, is it immoral to go and tell them look, have faith in yourselves. You can beat them. I, faith the is others. the wrong word for that. So, uh, so it's. I mean, you could. Uh, you're trying to motivate the best uh, in your. Um, I I. So I was on a wrestling team. I wasn't very good. I was so so. I kind of won half, lost half, um, but I was on a wrestling team, and we faced a team. They killed us every year. I mean, they had a really, really good coach and stuff until, I mean, they were really, really good, the technique and stuff, and all I saw was the mat, you know? So, um, and, but, you know, here we are. We're facing this thing again, and we all knew it, you know? And the, But the coach was saying, you know, like, they're trying to rally the best in us, rally our confidence, but not fake it. It's not like, let's all, you know have a prayer, and uh, we're going to win it. it no, no, it's not at all. It's just that, look, this team is really strong. What uh, you guys have learned a lot, I've watched your development, and it's, you know, I think you can make you can make a strong showing, and I, I want to see it out there. I want to see you doing it. And, uh, and, you know, you're looking back from where were you three months ago, and where are you now? And now you're facing some people who are really, really, really good. So I want you guys to keep your chin up, you know, and I want you to show me what you can do. You know, and okay, the kids are going out in there, you know, okay, with some confidence and stuff, but you're not faking anything, but you're trying to inspire them to the best of of your abilities. And and juxtapose this to the stereotypical Greek coach
4: who just tells you empty, (laughs) oh, you're the great, let's beat them like we beat the Turks. <laughs> <laughs> I had no coach telling me that, I, I, math, so I, don't, know, I is, don't know
3: what coaches <laughs> you
4: <laughs> The thing is, the player will see through this, the player will see that this yeah. is his it's BSing a facade. Yeah. yeah, it's a facade. Whereas if he, if he says, look, we have our tactic as you said, and then you try also to boost them, then you believe him. Otherwise, if it's only faith, even the players don't take it seriously and then they're going to end up mocking their own coach.
3: Yeah.
2: And I mean, you put it as humorous at the start. Um, well, if you look at the evidence, but I think that is exactly what you tell yeah. the athletes: to look at all the evidence, including how we've prepared. Yeah. And yeah, we might play a hundred percent and still lose, but that's what we're going to do. And if they're not at their peak, we're going to beat them this time. And so, and that—that that is looking at the evidence. Yeah.
3: Thanks.
6: Uh, can I make two questions? Okay, my first question is about metaphysics. Uh, are not we uh, committing an act of faith when we are um, saying that uh, um, defending, sorry, um, axiomatic concepts, for example, with system, with existence uh, or identity and and consciousness, oh. not we committing an act of faith by bel- believing in these in these concepts and defending them because it, it cannot be they cannot be proved. Uh, for example, uh, are we committing an act of faith, uh, saying that we are not in matrix and all all that we can see exists in uh, truly, you know?
3: Well, existence is grasped um, perceptually, so it's not something that is capable of or requiring of proof. So faith is: I'm going to believe in something whether or not I have a reason to believe in it or not. And uh, it's, existence is not a belief that one adopts um, without evidence or um, irrespective of what you observe. It's an observed fact that you have to then conceptualize. And you can put it in a propositional form, but it's it's conceptualizing a fact of which we are directly aware. So proof is what you resort to when you don't have direct awareness. Direct awareness is better than proof. It's more direct than proof. Um, that's one way in which it can be put. So it's not, I wouldn't put that, it's, not, an, it's I would not, I wouldn't put it, it's not an act of faith. Um, the other part of the question was which one it was? Uh, Second how, can,
6: how can we be sure that we are not in matrix uh, and that all we can see right here what is happening is really happening?
3: Well, that's more of an issue. I think it's that you're being offered an arbitrary claim, and then being asked to consider uh, it, it on its merits. Or something. There's no merits. Hmm. So, I mean, you're being presented with an arbitrary claim. Maybe you're just a brain hooked up uh, in a vat of nutrious liquid with electrical stimulation producing this room. What's the evidence for that? None. None. Right. Okay. So it's an it's Just dismiss it. What you are aware of directly is. Existence.
6: So, okay, okay. Um, my second question uh, is about uh, what Ayn Rand thinks about uh, if it could be desirable having a women president. It's, I think it's the one of the most controversial things I read uh, about Ayn Rand. She said that uh, she wouldn't ever vote a women president. Hmm. Well, I, uh, so with some exception, but she didn't decide because uh, she thought, psychologically, that femininity is the essence of worshiping man and that a woman wouldn't be happy ever in that position. I, I would like to know what do you think about that because I may be,
3: um, I think it, she may be wrong. Uh, you want to know the, what I think about that? Huh? You want to know what I think about that? I don't agree with that. No, I,
6: I want I, to know I. But <laughs> I want I, to know what you see, yeah. what you think uh, uh, about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, would I vote for? I would vote for a woman president. Sorry? I would I'm vote not? for a woman president. I don't know. I mean, so she's uh, from what she said in that article, I mean, I don't know Ayn Rand, but what, from what she said in that article, is she has certain kinds of views about, she's, I think she's trying to project out um, what she thinks of, the, of a psychology would be for a woman in that position. And I think she thought... Probably from introspection uh, that I would not want to be in that position, and uh, you know, so I don't have much to say about I don't know about those. I don't much about her views about that with psychology and stuff. Um, but I mean, I would vote for a woman president if I thought they were qualified. And uh, what was it? Leonard Peacock, something Like yeah, if Thatcher was there, she would have. know. in 1979, if you ask
4: Steinrann, Run, okay, it's uh, Thatcher versus Heath. Who was that? Uh, the, the Labour one. She would obviously support uh, and vote Thatcher. So I'm not even sure if the actual quote is, "I would never right. vote right. for you," because obviously she would vote for Thatcher over whoever else Labour, particularly back then when Labour were hardcore socialists. So I don't think it's an issue of I would. It's not like a political line she's passing. It's more like, as you said, the psychological. <laughs> More introspective, maybe even.
2: clear. Yeah, can I say a few things? So, one, this is not a philosophical issue. And more broadly, everything Ayn Rand said is not part of her philosophy. Philosophy is a science, it deals with certain principles, certain questions, and certain issues. This is a, is a psychological view of hers, not a philosophical view, though it has some connections. To philosophy, but most issues do have some connection. It doesn't make all the issues a philosophical issue, even if they have a philosophical aspect to them. And to take it just the... Um, there's been a long-standing in objectivism of taking... You can put it broadly as Ayn Rand's views on things and preferences and so on, as this is all part of the philosophy. And if I'm going to be an objectivist, I have to dye my hair orange because it seems like that's the best color hair if we take or And I mean, I've literally met people who have dyed their hair orange. And I don't think it's all at, like they're crazy. It's just they don't know at all how to process what it is they're responding to in Ayn Rand, what it is that they are not, and what a proper manifestation of this. So I view it as a positive. Like if you're responding positively to Howard Rourke as a character, that's a really good thing. If you think what that requires is I need to be independent and have orange hair, it doesn't require, it requires the first, not the second. Um, on the issue, so it's a psychological issue. It's not about who she would vote for. It's whether, and it's she's asked, if you were president, and her response to this is, I don't wanna be president. And it's a very strong, I would not want to be president. It's a certain view of what the presidency is. It's not obvious that it applies to every country. It's the president as commander in chief of the army. There's countries that, ba- like Canada, basically doesn't have an army. I think parts of Europe don't basically don't have an army. So the idea that oh yeah, now I'm appointed commander in chief of two boats and eight soldiers. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, but but it, it like so she it's projected as it's the it's the U.S. Your president of the U.S. She would not want to be that. But I was, so it's a, to say it's a psychological issue, not to dismiss it. I think Ayn Rand is enormously perceptive in re- regard to psychological issues. And she had to be as a novelist, and the kind of novelist she was. So to say that it's not a philosophical issue, just to say it's not part of the system of objectivism. That doesn't mean like everything else Ayn Rand said is crazy, but it's to be considered as, okay, this is a psychological point. And if you read that article, And think about some of the examples she brings up. Um, She brings up Joan of Arc, for instance. And to think of it, and to what she's projecting, and she's projecting it as a life, um, there's a real argument there to what she thinks is, like, why you wouldn't want to be in this position. Um, And you still might not agree with it. But it's not just, oh, I asserted a preference, or so on. There's a real view there about what masculinity is, what femininity is. And how to think about that and and what a full expression of that would be. And you might disagree in the end, but there's a real viewpoint there, but it's a psychological view, not a philosophical.
6: Okay, thank you so much.
1: In in other sciences or areas we use like you know like electrical circuit diagrams, like different flow charts, architecture diagrams. And I think we have seen a bit of a Um, hierarchical chart of Onkar's presentation this morning, but generally in philosophy it's like all text, text, and text. Is there like a fundamental reason, like like in objectivism there are some hierarchies you could visualize or conceptualize visually? Is there like a fundamental issue in philosophy or like is it just a field that like text and concepts and language is the right tool? Or is it just like a choice that um, all philosophy is like in a written form?
3: What would be the alternative? So philosophy is a conceptual subject.
1: Yeah, but for example, you have the the three, I think, fundamental axioms or also core virtues, and then you have like a hierarchy. So I think there's elements where you, at least in other fields, there's like a need to visualize certain aspects. But in philosophy, it's all like language-based. And I wonder if there's like some intrinsic reason of... uh, No, you
2: make. You make all these kinds of diagrams. You make it for arguments. They're often diagrammed. It's they're called argument maps now. It's sort of a burgeoning industry of making software that is able to do these things. And so, so no, you make. I mean, you do use diagrams and so on. You don't use math, um, and that makes it different than some of the other sciences. But it's it's um, that you use diagrams is. It's not essential to it, you could do it without it. It's a simplifying device, it's sometimes helpful, it's sometimes distorting.
3: I'm not sure if I get it though, because it's like, we, I mean, you teach philosophy, there's a blackboard. I mean, I don't know any uh, any professor that just doesn't come up and you, you draw some lines and you know, this is Plato's theory of forms and here's the form and you draw, I mean, so the visualization of these things is helpful. I find it helpful, but what you're, what you're diagramming though, if it was just lines and circles, it, like what are we talking about? It, it, so it wouldn't have any content. So if you put, you know, um, this is the form of the good, and here's a good man, and here's a good action, like. But you're you're using words though.
1: So right, but in none of the books there's any. Like I haven't seen any book with like diagrams
4: or pictures. It's all text. I, I was just curious if oh, there's c- some. Check Harry oh, Beam's yeah. How We Know. Yeah. I think there's a lot of. Uh, but even Doctor, even there's a very famous video. It's even on YouTube of Leonard Peikoff that with the 80s, uh, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. hair, or yeah. but w- where, where it's an introduction to philosophy video, and he uses this uh, yeah. metaphysics, and, and yeah. it's even visually e- helpful, because he says, after ethics, you can go either the way of politics, or the way of uh, art, so it's it's very simple, but it still helps in terms of, okay, now I picture that uh, I, I picture the hierarchy as you put it.
1: Okay, thanks, and I haven't seen all these examples. Okay. <laughs>
0: So I have a question from yesterday that I'm still thinking about uh, with tribalism. Um, So I see the relationship between tribalism and reason, tribalism and purpose. I'm still trying to think through tribalism and self-esteem and I would love to hear your thoughts about that, the relationship.
4: Okay, so at the first level is that most people get something by participating in a tribe, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So there is something very powerful in it. And there are many cases, anecdotal cases of people who go, let's say, to a huge political rally of people they don't like, but within one hour they're cutting the energy and they end up shouting the chants of the, of the rally, although they don't like it. So there is something there which might, which might be enticing. But the question is: why are you attracted to that? So are you attracted because, for example, no one loves you? And now suddenly you feel okay. Finally, there's a community to belong to. So this might be, might be attractive, but at the end of the day, what good is it doing to you? Because soon you realize that why do I need the love of, let's say, fellow Nazis if this is uh, the rally that you that you go? So when you, the, the way I see it, and I, I see it also with dating, which is let's say the smallest community, that if your self-esteem is here low. And somehow, someone who is, let's say, beautiful for, for the wrong reasons, falls in love with you, and now you feel a bit better. If in one month it's like, okay, it turns out you're a shallow person, I'm leaving you. You don't go where you were in the beginning. You go even lower because you don't have self-esteem. Your self-esteem comes from outside, and then this outside source is taken away. Now you feel even more worthless than you felt before. So I would say, not even it doesn't give you proper self-esteem. It destroys even more the way you evaluate yourself because you shouldn't evaluate yourself on whether you know this tribe of uh, torch holding white nationalists uh, like me. That's I would say it's destructive to self-esteem. But if you are part of a team which is for values and you are there for the right reasons and you get appreciated because of the work you put in, then that should indeed. So, for example, I'm very happy when, you know, people I respect like my, like my work. I get, it's not where I get my self-esteem, but it's a very nice boost. It's like, okay, I, I have reasons why I like these people. I did good work, which was not a scam. They appreciated, therefore, thumbs up. So this would be self-esteem boosting, but that's not uh, tribalism.
2: If, uh, if you want to read something on this that's related, The Ayn Rand's essay on racism, which is in The Virtue of Selfishness, talks about (coughs) racism and a form of pseudo self-esteem. So that real self-esteem, as Nikos was saying, comes from actual achievement. It comes from you as an individual having done something rational and good, worthwhile. You view it like that, and you're expecting other people to view it like that. If the, the projection that you think that what is significant about other people, but that means about yourself as well, is tribal characteristics and race is one of the that you can that like gets my skin color. That's what's significant about me and other people. Or it's it's. I mean, as she puts, racism. It's your genetic lineage. So it's I'm a family. I'm a member of the Kennedys or of our the, the Canada's idiot Prime Minister Trudeau. His claim to fame, to, to the the reason he's qualified to be president is because his father was a president. He's got no skills, no knowledge. That's how he should view himself. It's a form of pseudo self-esteem. No, I deserve the presidency because my name's Trudeau. My last. And that it the, the, that's a form of seeking pseudo self-esteem. And I think tribalism is often that as well. And this is the, it's they get a boost. It's not a real boost. It's a fraudulent attempt to get a boost.
4: Five more minutes, so let's take, yeah, two more. This
1: is about the first talk on Friday. There was the point at uh, free will and uh, opposed to that, the nature versus uh, nurture debate. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how the negation of free will uh, generates uh, that.
2: Negation of free will generates what? The
1: <laughs> nature versus uh, nurture dichotomy.
2: Oh, well, it's if, uh, if what's causally significant about a person and if you're trying to understand him his ideas his values um, what he is what he is as a person in the sense of of his ideas and values if it's not a product of his choices the question is well what is it a product of and the two answers are it's a product of his genetics and that's Uh, nature, or it's a product of its environment, and that's nurture. And the sophisticated position is is a product of both. Um, But what they've erased from the causal that plays any causal role is the person's choice. And that's because they think there's no such thing as free will. So there is no such causal role. We haven't overlooked anything. And it is true that to understand a person is certainly his environment, how he's brought up, what he, how he's been educated, what he's learned is relevant. It's much more relevant in what he does in that environment and what he chooses to do and how he thinks and what conclusions he reaches. And similarly, there can be roles for genetics as well. But it's the, all of that has to be processed in the context of what fundamentally drives a person is the choices he makes. And what are the choices he makes with given what he is genetically and the environment that he's in. But if there's no free will, then that that explains everything. Nature, nurture, or some combination. And that's the, by far the dominant. Thank you. Last question.
1: Yeah, uh, thank you. Should free countries trade with non-free uh, countries? So for example, should the US and other Western countries trade with,
2: say, uh, China? I I could say a word on that. Um, I don't think you can answer the question at that level of abstraction. So what's an unfree country, first of all? Is it any country that departs from full freedom? Um, And if 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 the answer is yes, that's what an unfree country is, then yes, you certainly can trade with other countries. But even if you go to know it's a welfare state or it's a dictatorship, it depends on what the context is in a foreign policy, of how much of a threat it is militarily, and what your foreign policy is. So even in regard to China, which I think is a real military threat, if our foreign policy was, that is the US foreign policy was, and more broadly the Western foreign policy was, we regard the Chinese government as evil, its leaders do not deserve their positions they should all resign or be overthrown we're not at a war with the chinese people and it's good for china and the chinese people that they compared to what they had under mao that they have more freedom and that they are way more prosperous than they were and if you try if your foreign policy was to try to drive a wedge between the chinese government and the chinese people and yet you would support the Chinese people if they rebelled against the government. So that In that context that you're then, that you say you can trade with China. Yeah, I think, yeah, it it's much harder, but then there's, there's no answer to like our foreign policy, we have no clue what we're doing in regard to foreign policy. And then if you ask like for any concrete thing, what should we do? I don't know, we don't have any principles that, about what we're doing for anything. So there's no answer in that context. But I think in, in the context, if we had a rational foreign policy, Yes, even for countries like China, there's a possibility, the answer is, yes, we could trade, but it has to be not if we treat the government as this is a respectable form of government.
4: And also would be what's the, so for example, shall my government allow me to go to Iran? I think the answer should be yes, as an individual. Now, if I get arrested, shall my country go to war with Iran? The answer I think should be no. If the country had the line, look, this is a very bad regime, Don't go to Iran. We don't recommend you visit Iran. But I think if I wanted to visit, I don't know. My girlfriend is stuck there. I want to take her out. Whatever. I think I should have... The government shouldn't tell me, no, you cannot go. But since once I go there, because they don't have relationship with that unfree regime, the idea would be if you go there and something bad happens,
2: you're on your own. Though, Iran's. I I don't know if you meant that as... Gener- a kind of generic example. Generic example. example. Yeah, generic I would example. use something like Venezuela. Venezuela. Iran okay. has been at war with the U.S. for yeah, okay. 20, 30 plus, and we just don't know it. Um, whereas Venezuela is not yeah. a threat. But it is a dictatorship. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: Okay, thank you.
4: Okay, so that's it for this <clears throat> session.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to Einran.org.